and a very, very warm welcome to the 2015 Tanner Lecture on Human Values at Oxford University, hosted by Lineker College. Uh, the Tanner Lectures, now in their 37th year, were established by the American scholar, industrialist and philanthropist, Obert C. Tanner. In creating the lectureships, Professor Tanner said, I hope these lectures will contribute to the intellectual and moral life of mankind. I see them simply as a search for a better understanding of human behaviour and human values. Appointment as a Tanner lecturer is a recognition of exceptional distinguishment and important scholarship in the field of human values. And that description is, is fully justified in the case of tonight's lecturer, Professor Peter Singer. Professor Singer has been variously described as the world's most influential living philosopher and the best known and most widely read of all contemporary ethicists. He is currently the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at the University Centre for Human Values at Princeton University and simultaneously a laureate professor at the University of Melbourne. In his long career, he's held positions at Oxford, New York, La Trobe and Monash, Monash Universities, but he started his vocation as a utilitarian philosopher here in Oxford with a B-Phil. <coughs> he is without doubt a man who does not shy away from voicing challenging ideas and stirring up controversy. His books on animal liberation, practical ethics and the life that you can save have provoked both plaudits and outrage. I hope that his lecture tonight will do just that. It is entitled, From Moral Neutrality to Effective Altruism, The Challenging Scope and Significance of Moral Philosophy. Professor Singer. Thank you very much. Uh, it is indeed an honor to be invited to give a Tanner lecture and especially attend a lecture at Oxford, so I'm very happy to be here. And I've chosen a topic that I think is particularly appropriate for Oxford and a topic that relates to the time that I spent here when I was a graduate student at Oxford in the early 1970s. I want to look at the dramatic change that has occurred in moral philosophy uh, over that time so this is a rather broad topic. I'm not going to examine one particular question in detail. Those who wanted that sort of argument, uh, I apologize. But I think it's interesting to occasionally take the opportunity to reflect and look back at where we've come from and why and where we're going. Uh, so that's the type of uh, talk that you're going to get tonight. In 1972, I was a Radcliffe Lecturer at University College, Oxford, my first academic appointment. And I published a brief article in Analysis under the title Moral Experts, in which um, I challenged the view that, uh, to quote one of the philosophers I, I'm going to discuss, I challenged the view that, as C.D. Broad put it, it's no part of the professional business of moral philosophers to tell people what they ought or ought not to do. So today I want to revisit that little article um, and 
ask why it was that people thought that that was the case. When we, those of you who are involved in moral philosophy today, um, will obviously see things quite differently. A lot of moral philosophy, as done by many people in this university, as elsewhere, is indeed, um, could be described as telling people what to do, that's maybe a little too crude, but at least as putting arguments about what one ought to do or ought not to do in particular situations. So why did people think something differently and uh, where have we come since that with the change in practice that has led us to where we are now? In the original article, I quoted from two philosophers, one of them just mentioned, C.D. Broad, perhaps best known for his book Five Types of Ethical Theory, um, and the other, uh, A.J. Eyre, who certainly at that time was a, one of the leading philosophers. Uh, he um, was then uh, Wiccan Professor of, of Logic here at Oxford, um, but had been a leading philosopher since the publication of Language, Truth and Logic in 1936, when he was only 26. That book was a kind of manifesto for logical positivism, um, which may have had something to do with the views that he held about ethics, indeed clearly did have something to do with the views he held about ethics, and perhaps about uh, what the proper role of philosophers is. Um, and today I'm going to add a third um, uh, philosopher who takes, in, in some respects, a similar view. Uh, that might surprise you. The third philosopher is Bertrand Russell. Okay, so in 1949, A.J. Eyre published an article called On the Analysis of Moral Judgments. Uh, it was later reprinted in his uh, book, Philosophical Essays. It was probably most widely read then because that was a book that was very widely used in teaching undergraduates philosophy at the time. Uh, in On the Analysis of Moral Judgments, Eyre restates in a somewhat more sophisticated form the view of ethics that he had already put forward in one chapter of Language, Truth and Logic. Um, that view was that ethical judgments don't state propositions that can be true or false. Uh, crudely put, the theory could be described as the boo-hooray theory of moral judgments. So if you say something is good, you're saying hooray for X, whatever it is. If you say something is bad, you're saying boo to X. Uh, and that's uh, roughly what it is to make a moral judgment. The um, view that he put forward in, uh, on the analysis of moral judgments was somewhat more sophisticated than that, but it was clearly in the same family, recognisably in that family, which came to be known as uh, emotivism, was more developed uh, more by C.L. Stevenson uh, with a number of articles about that time. But in explaining the implications of his theory, that is the theory of moral judgments, in, uh, on the analysis of moral judgments, Eyre makes some firm statements about the role of moral philosophy. So here's a longish sort of quote from that article. I am not saying that morals are trivial or unimportant, or that people ought not to bother with them. For this would itself be a judgment of value, which I have not made and do not wish to make. And even if I did wish to make it, it would have no logical connection with my theory. For the theory is entirely on the level of analysis. It is an attempt to show what people are doing when they make moral judgments. It is not a set of suggestions as to what moral judgments they are to make. 
And this is true of all moral philosophy as I understand it. All moral theories, intuitionist, naturalistic, objectivist, emotive, and the rest, insofar as they are philosophical theories, are neutral as regards actual conduct. To speak technically, they belong to the field of metaethics, not ethics proper. That is why it is silly, as well as presumptuous, for any one type of philosopher to pose as the champion of virtue. And it is also one reason why many people find moral philosophy an unsatisfying subject, for they mistakenly look to the moral philosopher for guidance. And then he adds, it is indeed to be expected that a moral philosopher, even in my sense of the term, will have his moral standards, and that he will sometimes make moral judgments. But these moral judgments cannot be a logical consequence of his philosophy. To analyse moral judgments is not itself to moralise. Clearly in saying this, Eyre is dismissing a long tradition of moral philosophy, which, um, sorry, I shouldn't have turned the page there, a long tradition of moral philosophy that goes back to Socrates, at least as Socrates is portrayed in Plato's Dialogues, where he goes around Athens questioning Athenians about their views about uh, justice or piety or something of that sort, and showing that they don't really have coherent views about these things. Uh, and that presumably would influence their thinking and their conduct to show, at least to unsettle them in some way. It's not that Socrates was perhaps himself specifically propounding a view, although certainly in the later Platonic dialogues he's portrayed as propounding views. Um, but still, that he is clearly doing things that relate to showing up particular normative views, as we would now call them. And that tradition then clearly goes on through Plato, through the um, medieval, uh, well, through the Epicureans and the Stoics, I guess, um, through the medieval scholastics, uh, who are certainly telling people what they think is, is right or wrong, uh, goes on through uh, later philosophers, Hume, uh, clearly, although he did some things that Eyre would say are uh, meta-ethics, he also wrote, for example, on suicide, and uh, I don't think would have suggested that he was not doing that as a philosopher. Uh, Kant um, lectured on uh, normative ethics clearly and uh, wrote on it, gave uh, examples of right and wrong behaviour uh, as he saw it. Um, the utilitarians, Bentham, Mill and Sidgwick uh, certainly all did normative ethics in which uh, you can find their opinions on various things that we should or should not do. And right up to the time just before Eyre wrote Language, Truth and Logic, um, or overlapping with it, uh, you would get W.D. Ross, the uh, intuitionist, who also clearly thought that in doing normative ethics, um, suggesting views about what's right and what's wrong, he was doing what was part of the part of moral philosophy, what was the role of the moral philosopher. But um, for Eyre, the fact that he was turning his back on that tradition probably wasn't in itself something that would trouble him because uh, that was the logical positivist view that he had been, uh, was to some extent still a part of, um, that idea that a lot, of, a lot of things that have been done before in philosophy, a lot of metaphysics, a lot of talk about God, for example, um, is really meaningless because uh, it's unverifiable, the statements made are unverifiable, um, and therefore we ought to reject this, and we ought to do philosophy 
in a very different sort of way. So I think it's, it's not too difficult to see where air is coming from and why he holds that restricted view of moral philosophy. Um, the other philosopher that I quoted in Moral Experts, C.D. Broad, uh, turns out to be a little more puzzling. Here's the quote that I used in the original article. It's no part of the professional business of moral philosophers to tell people what they ought or ought not to do. Moral philosophers as such have no special information not available to the general public about what is right and what is wrong. Nor have they any call to undertake those hortatory functions which are so adequately performed by clergymen, politicians and leader writers. Now here's a confession. When I used this quote in 1972, I didn't know very much about Broad, um, but here was a handy quote that I could use to make the point in the article that I wanted to criticise. So I didn't go very much further into it and I took that quote at face value. Now that I know a bit more about Broad, um, I think that at least that last part of it, about the uh, function so adequately performed by clergymen, etc., must have been meant ironically. Um, I I've learned, for example, that Broad was a homosexual who in 1958 signed a letter to the Times asking for the repeal of the law criminalising homosexual conduct. Um, clergymen at the time were certainly not supportive of the view that Broad must have held to write that letter. So um, he can't really, I think, have, have meant that very seriously. A second puzzling aspect about the quote is that it's from an essay entitled Conscience and Conscientious Action, which was first published in wartime in 1940. And the opening sentence indicates the topic of the essay. At the present time, tribunals appointed under an Act of Parliament are engaged all over England in dealing with claims to exemption from military service based on the grounds of conscientious objection to taking part directly or indirectly in warlike activities. And the article then goes on to examine this and indeed argue uh, against the possibility of these tribunals adequately performing that role. So this, in fact, we would now consider to be an article in practical or applied ethics. Um, so how is that compatible with the statement that it's not the business of the philosopher to um, tell people what they ought or ought not to do? Um, <coughs> what Broad is, in fact goes on to argue is um, that an analysis of the notions of conscience and conscientious action suggests that the tribunals have been given a task which from its nature is impossible of being satisfactorily performed and from this he draws the conclusion that this is a strong ground against exemption for military service on grounds of conscience and against setting up tribunals at all. Um, he doesn't, he acknowledges that there could be other reasons going in the opposite direction, so he doesn't think that he's finally resolved the issue, but he's clearly putting up a, an argument on one side of that issue, which uh, would have to be rebutted, or else one would have to conclude that we ought not to have set up, or the government ought not to have set up those tribunals. How can you resolve the apparent contradiction between the article itself and the claim that philosophers have no business in telling people what they ought or ought not to do. But 
Broad, if, you, if we look a little bit further on from the passage I quoted, Broad goes on to say, but it is the function of a moral philosopher to reflect on the moral concepts and beliefs which he or others have, to try to analyse them and draw distinctions and clear up confusions in connection with them, and to see how they're interrelated and whether they can be arranged in a coherent system. Now there can be no doubt that the popular notions of conscience and conscientious action are extremely vague and confused. So I think that by devoting this paper to an attempt to elucidate them, I may succeed in being topical without being impertinent. What Broad here describes is in fact the basis for a lot of what we now think of as practical or applied ethics. Um, in fact, what I was arguing in that uh, uh, early article is uh, part of that, that clearing up confusions in people's ideas, their moral concepts, can be an important role for a moral philosopher and can affect discussions about what we ought to do. Um, clarity, I said, is not an end in itself, but it is an important aid to sound argument, and if philosophers are clearer about concepts than popular usage is, then philosophers may have a valuable role in aiding sound argument by clearing up those confusions about concepts, um, just what Broad was doing. But Broad also says something that's actually more far-reaching when he recognises that it's the function of a moral philosopher to see how moral concepts and beliefs are interrelated and whether they can be arranged in a coherent system. And I think Broad could hardly deny that this was properly the function of the moral philosopher because um, Broad himself had earlier written that he thought the best book on ethics, the best moral treatise that had been written by a philosopher was Henry Sidgwick's The Methods of Ethics, a judgment that I uh, would be in agreement with. But um, a lot of what Sidgwick does, particularly in book three of The Methods of Ethics, where he's considering uh, what he calls common sense, the morality of common sense, or a, a form of intuitionism where we intuit certain moral principles, a lot of what Sidgwick does there is to examine particular concepts of things that are regarded as desirable by common sense morality like benevolence or uh, veracity, uh, gratitude and so on, and show that they're not really fully coherent concepts or they're not a, a uh, employed in a straightforward way on the basis of those concepts and that they need to be supplemented by some other principle and then later Sidgwick suggests that utilitarian, the utilitarian principle is the appropriate supplement for them. So Broad would have known, of course, that this uh, seeing whether a set of moral concepts is coherent and uh, self-sustaining is a part of moral philosophy. And it's clearly not normatively neutral. It wasn't normatively neutral in Sidgwick's hands. Uh, and in fact, a good deal of my own work in practical ethics can be seen as arguing that views that we hold are not coherent and therefore we need to rethink the beliefs, the moral beliefs that we hold. So, let me give you three examples um, where I've, I've used that uh, to argue for the need for change. The traditional doctrine of the sanctity of human life, as upheld to some extent by popular morality and certainly most strongly by the Roman Catholic Church, insists that all human life is of equal worth and we should not make decisions 
to choose between uh, to, to choose to end a life because of its uh, poor quality. Yet this doctrine also permits the withdrawal of life support in certain circumstances. For example, the withdrawal of a respirator from somebody who is in an uh, irreversible coma uh, or has had other damage that suggests that they will have um, an extremely poor quality of life. Now, there are various justifications for this permission that are given by the doctrine, including the idea that we don't have an obligation to provide extraordinary means of life support or that uh, some treatment is disproportionate to the uh, uh, benefit that it creates for the patient. But um, I've argued in various works that those justifications themselves rely on judgments that are quality of life judgments. So they're really disguised quality of life judgments. And if I'm right about that, then the doctrine is not really coherent. Second uh, example that will be familiar to many of you. Um, many of us believe that if we were passing by a shallow pond and saw a small child drowning in it uh, and um, realised that unless we rushed into the pond and rescued the child, the child would probably drown. Also realised that there was some cost to us in doing so, that we would ruin uh, an expensive pair of shoes that we were wearing by jumping into the pond. Um, but nevertheless, it would be seriously wrong for us not to rescue that child. This would not just be something that, uh, you know, it would be good to rescue the child but not wrong not to rescue the child. Virtually everybody thinks that it would be wrong to rescue the child, that you would have that obligation to do so in this case. But then, of course, we can broaden the picture and we can recognise that there are children dying from preventable causes all over the world, uh, that very often we can quite cheaply save those lives, maybe not exactly for the cost of an expensive pair of shoes. I admit that the uh, estimates that we now have are probably rather higher than they were when I originally wrote about this case, but still for things that are not enormous sacrifices for us, um, we can save a child's life. So uh, if we think that that's not wrong not to do that, it's not wrong, in other words, that you can be an ethical person without giving anything to help people who are much less well off than you are and whom you could help without making a huge sacrifice, um, there, then that needs to be explained. And simply the fact that the child is further away than the child in the pond doesn't seem to be a sufficient explanation. So something else needs to be said about that. Um, so that's, that's the second challenge that I think depends on showing incoherence in, in moral concepts or, or the set of moral views that people hold. Um, and thirdly, my work about uh, animal liberation has relied on a parallel between our objections to racism and our uh, objections to sexism, uh, and between that and speciesism. And I want to welcome uh, Richard Ryder to the room, by the way, for who, from whom I first saw the concept, the term speciesism. Richard was uh, at Oxford many years ago when I was in uh, that time, in the beginning of the 70s, and uh, produced a leaflet uh, with a picture of a chimpanzee who'd been infected with syphilis, looking very miserable, and the heading speciesism. I thought, hmm, that's a very interesting way of putting the idea that um, there's something similar going on in terms of a dominant, powerful group 
which defines moral status in its own interests in a way that enables it to make use of another class of beings um, who are denied moral status uh, and where it's very convenient or helpful for it to have higher status uh, over those beings. And that's exactly the phenomenon we see in even the most blatant form of racism in the racism of the slave trade. Um, and we can see uh, in the idea that males, uh, males have a moral status that, uh, that females don't have. So um, again there there's a question of can you consistently be uh, against racism, against sexism, but uh, accept speciesism? And uh, what would have to be done to justify drawing a distinction? Not, this is not on the basis of humans' higher cognitive capacities, which would not be speciesist, but on the basis of species itself. And of course, the views we standardly hold don't make, draw the line on the basis of cognitive capacities, because if they did, then some humans would not have a higher moral status than some animals. But since we, we don't draw the line on that way, we do draw it on the basis of are you a member of the species Homo sapien, therefore there's this difficulty in showing how that can be defensible when uh, racism and sexism are not. Now these arguments are only arguments about coherence of a set of beliefs. So it is possible to um, restore coherence not by going in the direction that I've suggested in my writings about these questions, uh, not by saying that it's okay to take into account quality of life in making life or death decisions, not by saying we do have an obligation to help people uh, in great need in developing countries, not by saying uh, we ought to reject speciesism, um, but by saying, well, in the first case, yes, it, it is wrong to withdraw a respirator, no matter what the quality of life of someone. We've, we've got to keep valuing human life, and so we've got to keep ventilating patients, even if they will, we can know for sure that they will never recover consciousness. Or in the shallow pond case, you could say, oh, well, I guess when I think about it more, I realise it wouldn't be wrong to just walk past the pond and let the child drown um, because you didn't want to be at the expense of replacing your expensive shoes. It's a possible position. And equally you could possibly, though I think people would probably be even more reluctant about this one, you could possibly say, well now I realise that racism and sexism are not wrong because clearly speciesism is not wrong. Um, so, so the argument from coherence does require people not to want to retreat from positions that they generally hold. Um, <coughs> so uh, I think that a, a more careful reading of uh, Broad than I gave in my 1972 article would suggest that what he's doing is enough to allow a lot of argument in practical or applied ethics. Um, and it's interesting therefore that he didn't himself want to draw that conclusion. That, um, he was so concerned to say that he wasn't really doing this. He seems to have felt, um, he uses the word, uh, th what he's doing in analysing the concepts, he says he, he hopes it won't be considered impertinent. So it's as if he thinks that for a moral philosopher to tell people what they ought or ought not to do would be seen as impertinence. Um, and there certainly seems to be some kind of modesty, uh, reluctance perhaps uh, of academics of that time, philosophers of that time at least, to get out of the university, the academy environment 
and to actually engage fully with the public about moral questions. But there was one philosopher of the time who was certainly not modest or reluctant to engage with the public about moral questions, and uh, that's my third example, Bertrand Russell, because uh, Russell was um, both the most, probably the best known British philosopher of the 20th century, uh, and he also wrote a series of uh, books, popular books, on issues ranging from social justice to sexual morality, and from uh, the nature of happiness, or the conquest of happiness, to use the title of one of his books, to uh, campaigning against uh, nuclear weapons for nuclear disarmament. So if Russell was both, both the best known philosopher of the, in Britain of the 20th century and wrote all those works, how can he be somebody who thinks that it's not the professional business of the philosopher to uh, engage with the public? And the answer is that although Russell was certainly doing what we would, might now think of as, uh, as practical ethics, he too didn't regard what he was doing as philosophy. Um, Russell's work in ethics is well discussed by Charles Pigden in his um, contribution to the Cambridge Companion to Bertrand Russell, edited by Nicholas Griffin, and in what follows I'm drawing on Pigden's work. So he points out that Russell himself contributed to a narrow view of what philosophy is. Russell wrote, and particularly what moral philosophy is. Russell wrote, the only matter concerned with ethics that I can regard as properly belonging to philosophy is the argument that ethical propositions should be expressed in the optative mood, not the indicative. That is the mood suited for wishes, expressing wishes and desires, not the indicative. So this is clearly an issue of meta-ethics, how we understand moral judgments again, um, as Eyre was doing, and roughly in the same general family of theories that uh, Eyre was talking about. So Russell held that normative ethical judgments can't be true or false, and Pigden suggests that because Russell thought that philosophy is the pursuit of truth, then talking about normative matters, ethical judgments, could not be part of philosophy. And this appears to have affected, I think, not only the way re Russell regarded his own writings in philosophy, on ethical issues, but also the way he went about those, that writing. Uh, consider this passage. Persuasion in ethical matters is necessarily different from persuasion in scientific matters. According to me, the person who judges that A is good is wishing other persons to feel certain desires. He will therefore try to rouse those desires in other people. This is the purpose of preaching, and it was my purpose in the books in which I have expressed ethical opinions. Elsewhere, in defending himself against a lack of precision in his writing, Russell refers to his Principles of Social Reconstruction, one of his early popular writings, and says, to some extent, this, this and to some extent my other popular books is not intended as a contribution to learning, but rather as having an entirely practical purpose. So Russell is distinguishing preaching from philosophy and putting practical ethics, or indeed all normative ethics, into the former category. The exception he makes is where you're just drawing implications from a principle. So he says, for example, suppose you accept the principle that we ought to maximise pleasure and minimise pain, you might then discuss whether capital punishment does or does not do this. Um, 
And that can be a scientific question. You're looking at the empirical facts of whether capital punishment does or doesn't do that. But it's not really then a normative activity either because you're just taking the, the, the values for granted and uh, exploring their implications. I think we see some of the effects of this view of practical ethics in Russell's own writing where um, he's very, he can be very dogmatic, he's not very careful about uh, the arguments he puts forward, um, particularly when he got on to the nuclear disarmament issue, um, he just says things like, um, uh, it's the plain duty of everyone, uh, he says, to make known two key facts, that nuclear war is not improbable and that it would cause the death of all or almost all human beings. Given this, Russell says, a philosopher or any other or, or, or a person of any academic capacity must devote himself by whatever means are open to him to persuading other people to agree with him as to these effects and to joining him in whatever protest shows the most chance of success. So um, I think you could say, you know, when Russell uses the term preaching, that does apply to some of his writings in this case. Uh, and you could say, well, Maybe that was justified if, if you believed the facts he claimed, that nuclear war was not improbable and given the devastation that would cause, then maybe that is what you ought to do, at least if you're a utilitarian. Um, but that's then not really practical ethics because you're simply trying to persuade people by whatever means you can. And uh, doing practical ethics is not persuasion by whatever means you can, but by uh, standards of reasoning and argument that are consistent, I would say, with philosophical thinking. Um, so, uh, both Broad and Russell then could have said that they were doing practical ethics, and Pigden argues that some of Russell's work should count as philosophical work because it uses philosophical arguments, but some of it is clearly not, and uh, perhaps the idea to avoid preaching when you're doing philosophy for Russell was part of this. But as I said, I think uh, as academics, we are familiar with assessing arguments. We're familiar with assessing arguments as well put, well constructed or not, um, and independently from whether we agree or disagree with their conclusions. Certainly now that we've had many years experience of uh, practical ethics being a part of philosophy uh, curricula, um, a lot of us have spent a lot of time grading papers, and I think we know reasonably well how to assess a well-argued paper and often a well-argued paper will not be a paper uh, with which we agree with the conclusions. Might, be, uh, might get a higher grade than a paper where we do agree with the conclusions, but where we think the argument is rather sloppy. Uh, and the same standards at a higher level, of course, are applied by reviewers when we submit papers to peer-reviewed journals. They're not supposed to recommend papers uh, because they agree with their conclusions, but rather because they think they meet the journal's standards of argument. So um, I think it's on that basis that we can actually resist the idea that uh, normative ethics, practical or applied ethics even, is uh, some form of preaching. Now what changed and how did we get to, to where we are today? I think the change occurred during the period when I was here at Oxford and uh, you know, in that sense, I guess that early article of mine was sensing the uh, winds of change that were already beginning to blow. Um, and although I'm not a historian, it seems obvious to me that 
Um, the student movement that had arisen at that time, that had been motivated uh, particularly by the war in Vietnam and opposition to that war, but also by social justice causes, by the movement for civil rights in the United States and against racial discrimination, um, the rise of the uh, feminist movement uh, around that time as well, that um, that led to a demand from students that the courses they were taking should be relevant to the big issues of the day. And some philosophers began to realise that uh, they were part of a tradition that had discussed those issues. A tradition that had discussed, for example, when is it right to go to war? When is, when is a war just? Uh, a tradition that had discussed when do we have an obligation to obey the law, given that there was a lot of civil disobedience uh, going on at the time. Um, so, uh, I think they began to go back to this uh, in response to that student demand and um, to think about ways in making philosophy more relevant. There was, uh, at the time, at this time also, um, a group known as Radical Philosophy, an organisation that was called Radical Philosophy, that was trying to make philosophy uh, more radical in some way. Uh, and I, I went to a, a conference at which this organisation was founded in, in London at that time, uh, and was involved with it for a while. But um, I became disenchanted with it because the idea of radical philosophy that began to be propounded and that you can see reflected if you go to the library and dig out uh, early issues of the journal called Radical Philosophy that they put out, uh, was that what was really radical was uh, partly the philosophy that was being done on the continent and partly Marxist philosophy. And if you combine the two of them and you got something like uh, Louis Althusser's uh, rather obscure analysis of Marx, um, then you had the epitome of uh, what radical philosophy might be. Um, and in contrast, Oxford philosophy was seen as something uh, inherently conservative, done in uh, stuffy academic drawing rooms by um, uh, elderly philosophers who were just analysing language and not interested in change. But um, I thought that it was actually important to do philosophy, that if we wanted to be radical and wanted to do philosophy in a radical way, it was important to do it in a way that people outside the universities could understand um, and that we could talk about issues that were important to them and mattered to them uh, in ways that were comprehensible and that would, I hoped, raise the level of discussion of some of these major issues that were being talked about at the time. And uh, going into continental or Marxist philosophy was certainly not going to make you more easily understandable in taking philosophy outside the academy. So um, that's why I, I wrote that article and I was interested in trying to put across the idea that philosophers do have something to say, do have some kind of expertise uh, on issues that they could contribute to these debates. And in fact, um, despite the image that Oxford had among radicals at the time, uh, I think I was pushing on a door that was already half open because there were people here in Oxford who were doing what we would now call practical ethics. There were seminars uh, given, for example, by uh, Derek Parfit, Jonathan Glover and Jim Griffin that uh, where Parfit was doing his well-known material on, on population ethics, um, which, uh, although fairly abstract, does have implications for a lot of practical issues. 
Jonathan Glover was doing early work that uh, developed into his book Causing Death and Saving Lives, which was raising questions about the sanctity of life and very relevant for medical decision making. Um, so there was, uh, this sort of thing was, going, was actually going on. And um, when I suggested to my uh, uh, supervisor, R.M. Hare, that uh, I'd like to write my B. Phil thesis on uh, civil disobedience in a democracy, uh, he was perfectly happy to accept that and um, said that he had actually always thought that the point of doing moral philosophy was to make a difference to our views about what we ought or ought not to do. Um, although his best known works, Language of Morals at the time and Freedom and Reason, didn't totally do that, but Freedom and Reason you can see looking at it now, lots of examples he gives of how moral argument can be used and those examples do suggest that you can get to certain normative conclusions. So um, I think it wasn't uh, that difficult uh, to start doing moral philosophy in that way. And another important source of um, encouragement at the time was the founding of the journal Philosophy and Public Affairs, which was founded in the United States, um, which provided an academically uh, first-rate forum for discussion of practical issues. And you only have to look at the first couple of volumes of that to see that they immediately elicited, I think, articles that did challenge people's thinking in important ways. Um, a couple of them on abortion, Michael Tooley's Abortion and Infanticide, Judith Jarvis Thompson's famous um, defense of abortion in which he uses the violinist example, uh, and my own Famine, Affluence and Morality was published uh, in that journal as well. So, um, I think that uh, this turn to uh, practical ethics pretty rapidly began to make a real difference uh, in philosophy and in the real world as well. And let me just mention some of those differences in the areas that I'm most interested in. in uh, if we look at the question of animals and ethics, uh, there's a bibli bibliography that was published by Charles Magel in 1989 uh, listing works that deal with animals and ethics. Um, and up to 1970, up to this time I'm talking about, um, uh, well, beginning, putting aside a couple of works in antiquity, uh, in the first 1,970 years of the Christian era, Magel found only 94 works that discuss animals and ethics. Um, in the next 18 years before the bibliography was completed, there were 240, and I'm sure if you tried to do a bibliography now, it would run well into the thousands. And that debate has spread around the world and uh, is being discussed in a lot of non-English speaking countries as well, including uh, Japan, uh, Korea, and even to some extent China. And I think philosophers played an important role here. It's not that there wasn't an emerging animal movement as well. There was, but uh, the work of philosophers helped to grow that and to make it, I think, something that was seen differently, transformed it from a movement that was widely seen by the public as something based on sentiment, something for animal lovers, people who cared about animals. So they were the ones who were going to be concerned about cruelty to animals. And if you were not an animal lover, well, this was not really for you. But I think the involvement of philosophers helped to make it just a moral issue in the same way that racism and sexism, for instance, are moral issues. And uh, therefore enabled other people 
who may not have thought that they were animal lovers, may not have been particularly concerned about living with cats and dogs or other animals, to see that this was an issue that they should also be involved in. Um, so uh, I think that uh, clearly philosophers have played a role in that and that has in turn led to various legislative changes, not, uh, not in my view nearly enough in the way of change, but has led to significant changes. Um, and of course has also led to many people changing their own diet, which is a pretty personal kind of transformation in terms of the way we live. Now, is that a form of preaching rather than a form of uh, philosophy? I think if I look back on my own work, if I look back on animal liberation, the first chapter is um, setting out a philosophical argument, roughly the argument that I summarized for you. Um, and the fifth chapter talks about the history of other views, uh, of speciesist views of animals in a critical way. And the sixth chapter looks at some objections. Uh, the uh, second, third and fourth chapters are really factual, they're descriptive materials. Um, so yes, the book as a whole is clearly a work of advocacy, but I would say that uh, at least parts of it are um, proper, what is properly the work of a philosopher, uh, putting forward arguments that are subject to criticism and discussion, and uh, people have tried to rebut them. Obviously, I don't think they have done so successfully, um, but uh, that's a debate that um, can continue. So let me move from that to um, the other issue that I've been uh, most involved with here, uh, that I've also already mentioned, the question of our obligations, the obligations of the affluent to the global poor. Um, here the story is slightly different. With Animal Liberation, once the book was published, it started to get taken up by uh, a number of organisations, new organisations that were founded, um, and started to have an influence reasonably rapidly in the direction that I wanted it to have. With Famine, Affluence and Morality, which as I said was published in 1972, um, it did get widely discussed by philosophers, uh, and it got reprinted in a lot of anthologies, and so it got its way into philosophy courses. But it didn't, for quite a long time, get read outside philosophy courses and, and philosophy itself. And um, even when it was used in philosophy courses, it wasn't always used in the way that um, I think now more people see it. Um, this was brought home to me just a couple of months ago. I was giving a talk at Harvard University, to, um, it was organized by uh, a group of effective altruists there, I'll talk about that in just a moment, and uh, Josh Green, who's a professor of psychology at Harvard, introduced me. Um, Josh had been an undergraduate philosophy student at Harvard, uh, and he said that uh, when he was an undergraduate, famine, affluence and morality was part of the curriculum in a course that he was taught. But it was put by the professor teaching the course more or less like this. Um, here's an article that seems to make a strong argument for a conclusion that is clearly impossible. Just too demanding. Can't be true that we are all doing something wrong because we're not helping people in poverty elsewhere in the world. So what's, tell me what's wrong with the argument. That was, that was the attitude with which it was taught. Um, and I, I think, you know, that, that resonated with me in things that I'd certainly heard people say. Um, but uh, things 
have started to change, uh, did start to change a few years ago in that area in an interesting way. And uh, I think a number of people going, say, around something like eight years ago now, started to think about this rather differently. And I'm not quite sure why this happened, but uh, some of it, a significant part of it, happened here at Oxford. Um, I remember the, one of the first intimations that I had that something different was going on was when Toby Ord, who was then a graduate student in philosophy here and is now a, uh, in the Future of Humanity uh, Institute, um, told me that he was interested in starting up a group uh, which would promote the idea that we can quite inexpensively do a lot of good in the world uh, and indicate to people some of the charities that were most effective in doing good. Uh, and Toby himself um, took a public pledge to live um, on an amount that was not much above his graduate studentship, adjusted for inflation, um, for the rest of his life and to donate the rest to effective causes. Um, and was you know, telling other people about this and suggesting that they might be doing, might think about, if not doing quite as much as that, at least pledging 10% of their income for the rest of their life to help the most, uh, to the most organisations that were most effectively improving the world. So Toby was doing that and Giving What We Can was launched uh, here in Oxford in 2009. Um, and uh, Toby was assisted in this by another Oxford graduate, Will McCaskill, um, who also then set up an, another organisation called 80,000 Hours, which um, is involved in helping people to choose ethical careers. Um, there's a website you can look at, 80,000hours.org. There's also givingwhatwecan.org. Um, and 80,000 was, was Will's calculation of the number of hours that people spend in their career. And Will thought, people don't spend enough time. Given that you're going to spend 80,000 hours doing something, wouldn't it make sense to spend maybe 1% of that time in deciding what it is you're going to do with the other 99%? But 1% of 80,000 is 800 hours. Very few people spend 800 hours thinking about their career choice or thinking systematically about it. So Will wanted to help them doing it and um, came up with some interesting ideas which uh, I won't go into now about uh, what might be ethical career choices that you might not really have thought about. So um, uh, this has led, uh, or has been part of, I wouldn't say it's the whole thing, to the growth of this uh, effective altruism movement. And if you're not familiar with it, effective altruism is a philosophy and a social movement. It's a philosophy that says uh, we want to make the world a better place, we want to do the most good we can, uh, to use the title of a uh, recent book on this that I've it's got for sale out there if you want to have a look at it. Um, and, uh, but we want to do this in a way that uses evidence and reason to work out how we can actually do the most good. Uh, and I think it's been really interesting to see how this movement has grown. I was talking to Toby, in fact, earlier this afternoon and he told me that uh, Giving What We Can now has over a thousand people who have pledged to do that 10%. And if you uh, uh, estimate their likely income over their future and how much that will mean, uh, we're talking about 400 million pounds that will be donated 
to effective charities uh, if they fulfil that pledge. So this is not a small thing, but it's, this, is, this is one organisation, it's only a part of other organisations that are encouraging people to be effective altruists. And uh, there is a Centre for Effective Altruism that um, is based here in Oxford, connected uh, with the, the Future of Humanity Institute and uh, the Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics. And we have a lot of people um, in Oxford who are working in this in a wide variety of ways. A lot of different philosophers whom some of you will know and some of you uh, may not uh, who are involved in, in this activity. But what I think is really most interesting about this whole change that we've had and about practical ethics is how it shows the power of philosophy to change people's lives. I've already mentioned changing people's lives in the direction of changing their diet. Uh, changing people's lives you've seen in the direction of what they do with their income, in pledging to give a certain part of that to um, effective charities, to live on less than they otherwise would. Changing people's lives in terms of the direction of the career they take, and I know uh, a number of people who've been influenced by 80,000 hours to change their career. In fact, um, you may be sorry to learn that Oxford lost a very promising graduate student, a, a Princeton student uh, who had been accepted to do graduate work at Oxford, but decided that uh, a career in philosophy was not the most effective thing that he could do with his life. Um, and I talk about him uh, in the book if you, if you want to know more. But um, indeed, uh, I've got an even more dramatic example of that, um, and I want to close with uh, that example and a couple of remarks about philosophy. So, um, a couple of years ago, I received an email out of the blue from someone I'd never heard of that began as follows. In the life you can save, my previous uh, book on this issue, you remark that as far as you know, no student of yours has ever actually donated a kidney. Last Tuesday, I bit the utilitarian bullet. I anonymously donated my right kidney to whoever could use it the most. By doing so, I started a kidney chain that allowed a total of four people to receive kidneys. This came from Chris Croy, who was a student um, at St. Louis Community College, uh, not a particularly elite university, but uh, he came to this decision after a philosophy class that read um, not just My Famine, Affluence and Morality, but a critical article by John Arthur that tried to refute my views by saying, well, if this is true, then one obvious means by which you could aid others is with your body. For example, you could donate a kidney to a stranger. Um, and someone in the class said, no, that isn't right because you'd die if you donate a kidney. But Chris realised that that wasn't true, that actually you can do quite well with one kidney. In fact, the chances that you will shorten your life by donating a kidney, according to one estimate, are only one in 4,000. Um, so uh, he did this, talked about it to various people, um, and eventually called up a hospital and offered to do it. And he's not the only person, uh, in fact, who's been influenced by taking a class in philosophy to donate a kidney. Now, this is interesting in that it relates back to some things that philosophers have said in the past about the nature of ethics and the nature of human beings. I think, um, I'm thinking particularly here, for instance, of Bernard Williams' uh, criticisms of Henry Sidgwick's idea of taking a universal point of view. That is, we should act ethically by taking the point of view of the universe and recognising that the welfare of others counts as much as our own, our own welfare. And Williams says, that's impossible. Humans just aren't that kind of being. You can't really detach yourself from your own projects and take 
the point of view of the universe. But I think effective altruists come close to doing that. I'm not going to say that they're purely doing that. Maybe nobody is, is purely doing that. But they're certainly thinking much more from that perspective. And they're doing things that um, other people, I think, would have said it's quite unrealistic to expect people to do. And I think it's evidence of the importance of philosophy and the power of practical ethics that um, it can lead people to do this. People often talk nowadays of a crisis in the humanities, that uh, enrolments in the humanities are falling, that the humanities seem less relevant in a world that is uh, much more digital and people find uh, other more attractive and exciting things that they want to do. Well, I don't have a brief to defend the humanities as a whole, but I certainly think that uh, philosophy is a key part of the humanities uh, and uh, I don't think that philosophy is less relevant than it was. I think it's more relevant. And I think that uh, when A.J. Eyre said uh, one of the reasons people find philosophy is dis disappointing or moral philosophy is disappointing is because they mistakenly look to the moral philosopher for guidance, I think Eyre had it exactly wrong, exactly in reverse. I think that... Um, Although certainly there's a lot of interest and importance in that discussion as to whether moral judgments can be true or false. And it's good to see that discussion revived. Uh, again, with uh, Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit, I think, playing an important role in, uh, on what matters in that discussion. It's good to see that discussion revised. It is an important discussion. But um, I think the, the cutting edge of this, if you like, where the rubber hits the road, um, is really when we start discussing normative ethics and I don't think any of us should have any doubt about the importance of doing that and about the fact that uh, here philosophy undoubtedly changes lives. Thank you very much.